Good morning, Hope Church. Good to have you here. Great holiday weekend, right? Get a little extra day to kind of unwind and get back to it. If you're joining us online, we're glad you're joining us. Hey, uh, so we were down in Iowa City. One of the things that we talk about a lot, if you're here for any time or if you've watched, um, is we, we're, we use a phrase, what's your next step? And, you know, one of the things that's true in this world is things are getting more and more complex and you kind of kind of keep growing you got to keep moving you got to keep learning you got to take those next steps and uh, so we were down in Iowa City uh, yesterday because two of our kids wanted to they were invited to go to the the offensive uh, dominate domination uh, game yesterday in Kinnick Stadium that uh, was yeah whatever Anyways, they were down there, and we watched uh, their, their th- kids, the three grandkids. And uh, one of those uh, boys, little boys, wasn't walking about a month ago. And he was walking now. Like, he's walking. He's doing things I can't even do. Like, he's, like, getting down, and his, his, his little butt is right by the ground, and he's standing up, and I'm going, I can't do that. I'd, like, fall over if I did that. He's like, you know, he used to be just like lay there and smile. Now he's like all over the place. He's in your grill. He's walking, he's walking like in dangerous, precarious places, and you've got to keep an eye on him, and he's just all over the place. But he's figured out how to take that next step, and he's taken a lot of those next steps. And, you know, sometimes we talk about the Christian life and we say, what, what is it that we need to do in the Christian life to grow? Um, and maybe you're here today and you're watching and you go, I don't know if I even believe in God. I, I have a lot of questions. You know, I struggle with a lot of things. Okay, I get you. But you're still going to take a step, hopefully, today. I mean, we all need to take steps, right? So, but it's... As Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we say, how do we grow in our relationship with Jesus? How do we do that? How do we, what does that look like? And we say, well, you know, and we, you know, we talk about it a lot. We say, well, you need to be meditating, reading the scriptures, you know, on a regular basis, daily. Um, you need to, um, you need to pray, you know. Jesus talked a lot about pray. He says, when you pray, pray like this, right? Uh, you should be like, leveraging your resources, your money, and your time, and your talents, your gifts, and abilities for his kingdom. You should kind of be in accountability relationships with other Christians so that when the wheels start coming off, you have somebody say, hey, you better check that tire. It looks a little low on pressure. You know, we need those people around us, right, to kind of, but you say, why do you do all those things? Why do you do all those things? Some of you who are watching, some of you who are here in-house today, if I were to ask you on a scale of 1 to 10, your relationship with, with, with Jesus right now is like, I'm at a 10, or I'm at a 1, I'm at a 5. Things are cold, things are dry, things aren't good. Where are you at? Well, what number would you take today? And are you happy with that number? Are you good with it? Or you say, Man, I don't like that number, and I, but, but here's the problem. I don't know how to get out of it. I don't, know what, I don't know what my next step should be. So we're going to talk about that. So if you've been around Hope for the last few weeks, we've been talking about the letters or the epistles 
of the New Testament. Those are just letters that Paul wrote a lot of them. In fact, the one we're going to look at today, Paul wrote it uh, to Titus. And you could turn there to the book of Titus. And um, Titus is, uh, is one of Paul's, like, protégés. Timothy was one. Titus was one. And they kind of assisted Paul in the ministry. And um, let me just give you a little background of, of that. So Titus went to this island uh, of Crete, okay? And he was left behind to help strengthen the churches. Now, you need to understand the churches weren't big, large buildings at that day. They were small. They were in houses many times. If you had a big house, then you, would, you could house a church. But here's the problem. There were some problems going on. There, was, there were like false teachers, which is a real problem. You see that in the book of uh, Titus. You see it in Timothy. Um, and so there were a lot of false teachers going and teaching the wrong things. And so Paul basically uh, encourages Timothy, or excuse me, Titus, and he, he says, here's what you need to do, Titus. You need to put qualified, godly leaders over those house churches as elders. And so then when you read through Titus, you'll see the qualifications of an elder. And in Timothy, you see the qualifications of an elder. You'll see the qualifications of a deacon. Now, why does he do that? Because he's saying, you need to find qualified, godly leaders. This is what they look like. And I just want you to know that we at Hope Church, we walk our elders through, before they even become an elder, before they even become before the church and you vote on them, we basically sit down with them for a period of time. And one of the things that we do is we sit down and we go through these qualities and we say, okay, this is what an elder should be. You know, these are some of the qualifications. And we do that. And so we go to the passages like in Titus and Timothy to say, what should a good godly leader look like? Because after all, folks, we got a problem in the church today, don't we? It was like, okay, who fell this week, right? And we need to have that, those strong, godly leaders. So Titus is really interesting. He's an uncircumcised Greek. Paul is a circumcised Jew. They couldn't be worlds apart from cultures, but they were brothers in the Lord, and Paul was Titus's mentor, and they shared the same faith. Uh, let me talk a little bit about the island of Crete. So this island was really interesting. You probably, if you've gone through any kind of education, you've heard about the Greek gods, Zeus, and, you know, the different gods. And um, this island kind of had an attitude because they felt like that the, the gods grew up as men in their island and they became gods. So they were like the launching of these Greek gods, like, like Zeus. They would say, Zeus grew up on Crete, and he grew, and he grew, and he grew, and he finally became a god. And the god Zeus had his birth on our island. I mean, like, we were the ones that launched Zeus, right? This, this man became a god, okay? And so they had this thing, but they also had kind of, kind of a dark side and one of their philosophers described the, the people of Crete like this. This is one of their own. And he said, they're always liars, they're evil brutes, and they're lazy gluttons. Well, thank you for that. Let's just put that on the sign so that when people come and visit, they know what 
derelicts we are, right? I mean, thank you so much, you know. But so, so I just want you to know the audience that Titus was working to, to, to uh, build up churches on this island with this type of culture. It was kind of a dark culture. And there were many gods in this culture. And so they were trying to... Uh, and so Paul warns them, Paul warns Titus of false teachers. In fact, he says this in Titus 2.1. He says, you, however... In contrast to the false teachers, he says, you, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. So this is the book of Titus, all right? Um, Paul is calling Titus to be part of this island culture, but not to be of it. And we're also told the same thing. We're, to be, we're told to be in the world, but not of the world. And that's a hard balance. That's a hard balance. So the passage we want to look at today, we're going to focus in on this passage. This is Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Titus 2, 11. I'm going to just read through verse 14. You could follow along with me. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify himself uh, for himself, a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Now that one word there where it says, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem your kids, today are learning about that word redeem or redemption. What does it mean? So you might want to ask them on the way home in the car, what did you learn today in, in your class? And they may, might throw the, well, it was an R, redeem, redemption? Yeah, they, they talked about that. Um, now notice this, this grace of God goes out to all of humanity. So, and Paul talks about that in Romans 1, the, the grace of God has gone out to all of humanity. Everyone has had an opportunity or has an opportunity to hear the grace of God, but not everybody wants to hear it. Not everybody is receptive of the gospel. Not everybody wants the gospel, and some are directly opposed to the gospel. And the under interesting thing is, I think that the gospel is misunderstood by so many people. And it's misunderstood really in two key ways. So you might want to write this down. There's two ways that we misunderstand the grace of God. And number one is, um, is through uh, license or just loose living. And basically what this means is that many people see the gospel as kind of a get-out-of-jail card. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, I can live my life any way I want. Why? Because God, in the end, will forgive me. Have you ever done this? Don't raise your hand. You'll be embarrassed. Have you ever considered doing a sin or committing a sin, knowing that God would forgive you, that his grace will cover your sins, and all you have to do is go to him and forgive him? So what I'm saying is you preemptively thought about God's grace before you sin and said, well, when I sin, I can just confess it and then God will forgive me. So you preemptively did that. Come on, you know you, some of you have. You say, well, I'm going to do this and I know God will forgive me. I know I shouldn't, but I'm going to. 
but God is gracious and he will forgive me. And, and, and this is where Paul says in Romans, he says this, it's very interesting. He says, shall I sin or shall we sin that grace may abound? What's he saying here? He's saying that you know, people, you know, people are people, right? And we figure this out. I could just go and sin and then God will forgive me. Paul's saying, you, you're going to go sin so that your grace, God's grace will abound. It will forgive you. And then he says these words, very strong language. He says, shall it never be? Let it never be. Let it never be. Don't do that. You know, many people take advantage of God's grace. Um, they, they fall to the lusts of their flesh and they live for today. So that's one error. The second one is legalism. Well, what is legalism? Legalism are people that basically say, I'm going to follow the law to the letter. In fact, I'm going to make up the law as I go along. Scripture may say this, but I'm going to go even further than that. I'm going to make up the law, and I'm going to follow the rules and the regulations, and and everybody else is going to follow them, and no one's going to follow them as well as I do. And you know, the typical people in the New Testament we see is, are the Pharisees. They're, they're typical of this. They were the ones who said, look at me, I'm following the law. Now, we all look at the Pharisees. In fact, Pharisee is a pejorative term. We use it kind of as a negative way to label people. But in that day, the Pharisees were looked up to. They were the, they were the moral high ground of, of society. People said, man, I want my, 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 my son to be a Pharisee. Right? Because they were looked up to. But here's where, here's where legalism goes. And by the way, legalism is alive and well today. There are churches in this community, Christian churches, that say, unless you use this version of the Bible, unless you dress this way, unless you don't do this and do do this, you can't be a Christian. And, and, and there's, there's uh, the nasty nine. These are nine things you better not do or the dirty dozen or... You know, they have their list, they have their rules, they have their regulations, right? And they, and they basically say, we follow all these rules. You know, what always got me, and, and I have attended over the years many of these churches that are legalistic. It's interesting to me that the pastors never preached against obesity. <laughs> and the scripture talks about your body being a temple. And I thought... You know, it seems to me that you're preaching against things that you've got this list that works for you, but then there's some other things in Scripture you're kind of conveniently avoiding, and that's what legalism does. Here's the point I want you to see. Legalism says you have to earn God's grace. License says you, you just abuse God's grace. You, just, pre, you know, just preemptively use God's grace. Legalism is abuse, is, is, is earning God's grace. I have to earn God's grace. Um, the greatest example of the misuse of the grace of God is the prodigal sons. By the way, it's not just one son, it's two sons, prodigal sons. The first son was licensed, right? It's very clear. He runs away. Dad, give me everything I want. It even says in the story, he lived his life. I mean, he took all the money and he just wasted it. He just spent it in, 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 in debauchery. I mean, just bad. I mean, it was like clearly he was like off the rail, right? It was clear he's a sinner. But then you have the good boy. The town would have said, oh, that one boy, he was a rascal, but at least he has one son who is a good one, right? He stuck by his dad. He worked in the field. He's the good boy. 
So the son, you know, the bad son comes back. The dad says, you're forgiven. The, the older brother hears about it. He is livid. He is mad. He is angry. He won't come into the party. And he come, his dad comes out and pleads with him to come in. This is the legalism. This is the legalism. And he says, Dad, you owe me. I have worked in these fields year after year after you've given me nothing. Both sons were saying the same thing to the father. We don't really care about you. We care about the inheritance. The one son was licensed. He just kind of said, I just want what's coming to me. Give it to me. The, other, the older boy was kind of biding his time, but he you know, essentially wanted the same thing. Two different manifestations, two misunderstandings of grace. And by the way, they're alive and well today in churches. Both license and legalism fall short of the gospel. Here's what happens. When you really truly understand the gospel and the grace of God, it will bring a longing to your heart. It will bring something to your heart that you... And I want to develop that point a little bit. When you understand the gospel, it will bring a longing to your heart. Now, the passage we're looking at, there's three things that I think, if you understand the gospel correctly, if you understand the grace of God correctly, essentially what he's saying, the grace of God has been revealed so that, what, so that what? Three things. Number one, that we will understand that we have been called out of the world. That we, we no longer belong to this world system that is dominated by darkness. The grace of God discourages certain behavior. We say no to ungodliness and to worldliness. Um, you know, the Bible says over and over that we're to be in the world but not of the world. That we're to be light and salt, but we're not to be overtaken by the world and consumed by the world. And that's a fine line because it's hard for us to engage our world without becoming polluted by our world. And some people like to really, Christians especially, like to walk the line and just get really close to it. But, you know, there's others of us that probably would say, you know, I'm just kind of allowed the world to really wreck me, pull me in with my language, with my behavior. I'm, I'm right there with, with the world. Um, I, and I think we're failing. Jesus said, he said, you are the light of the world. If you have a light, you don't, you don't put it, on, you don't put it um, on a hill and then cover it with a basket. You're, you're salt, you're light. And, and I don't think we are. I don't think we're doing a very good job there. That we're essentially what the New Testament says for followers of Jesus Christ is we're supposed to be grace on display. We're supposed to be grace on display. Now, what, what, what has happened, though, is when churches and Christians begin to be legalistic, what people do is they reject legalism. They think they're rejecting the gospel. They think they say, well, I don't, I don't believe in Jesus. I don't follow. I'm, I, it's not for me. And what they're doing is they're rejecting legalism. They aren't rejecting Christianity. Because if you hear what they're rejecting, they're rejecting, you're hypocrites, you don't follow the same laws you have, I don't believe in, you know, and, and many of the laws and rules and regulations that they're, they're struggling with are not even biblical. Or they look, at, they look at your life because you're living a very 
loose life. And they go, I, I'm really not sure what you have to offer me because you kind of are, if you're honest, you're like a little more dishonest than I am. And you're not n nearly as, uh, um, you know, if I was to compare my moral life and your moral life, I think I'm doing better than you and I'm not even a Christian. So I'm not really sure what you have for me. So they're not rejecting the gospel. They're rejecting the license, the looseness. They're rejecting the legalism of that is purported to be Christianity. And, and I think what's going on here is we're not doing a great job here. The world has seen the church. They think they've heard the gospel, and they're not impressed. And by the way, I want to tell you this. The younger generations, they're even less impressed. And boy, I'll tell you what. If there's ever generations that have grown up without God that need hope today, they're alive today. And they have no hope. And they have no direction. And we, I believe, have a message that could change their lives. Until we get to understand the true message of the gospel and it gets into our hearts, until we see that we have an opportunity here, uh, we're in big trouble. I think we're failing. I think we're failing to be light. I think we're failing to be grace. But basically, Paul basically says, if you understand the gospel, you say no to, to worldliness and ungodliness. You say no to it. You go against the current of the culture. Secondly, um, when you understand the gospel, it enables us to live godly lives. The grace of God enables us to live godly lives. Now, I want to ask you a question. Why do you, why do you live a moral life? Why do you live a good life? Why do you live for Jesus? Why do you do it? You should really ask yourself, why am I doing this? Some of you might say, well, I know I should. Or some of you might say, well, I want to fit in. I want to fit in with my tribe. I want to be accepted. I don't want... Maybe some of you are here, some of you are watching, you say, well, I, I'm doing it because I, I, I don't want to stand before God one day and have him say, you're, 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 you didn't live a good enough life, so therefore you're not, you're not welcome here. By the way, many people believe that's how what that's the measure of how you get into heaven is how good of a life you live it's not but that's what many people think what is the key though to live a life that's pleasing to god because frankly all of these things like bible meditation you know re releasing your resources your time your talent your treasure to god being accountable, those are all really important things that we should do, but why do we do them? I think the gospel, when you really get it, creates within you a longing in your heart. Have you read some of the Psalms where David says, my heart longs for you, O Lord? And have you ever read that and go, David, I have no idea what you're talking about. Or I had an idea, but I don't anymore. That seems like a long ago feeling that I've had. We long to please him. We're drawn to him. We love him because 
he first loved us. You see, here's the thing. Until your heart changes, nothing changes. Do you have a desire to read and meditate on Scripture, to pray, to leverage your, your, your money, your gifts, your kingdom, for his kingdom, um, to be held accountable by God and others? Too often we're driven, Christians are driven, and I see this, I think this is really going on in our culture. They're driven by their passions. And, and I don't mean passions like I'm passionate about serving God. I mean worldly passions, living for yourself, doing what you want to do. Um, but when you, prof- when you experience a profound touch of God's grace, it changes everything. It changes why you meditate on Scripture. It changes why you want to leverage your resources. It changes why you want to be accountable. It changes all of that. Um, when you let the gospel seep into your soul, you will see joy and generosity and desire to live holy. Um, that will be just kind of natural. Let me give you, let me give you an illustration. So, as I said, so we were down. We were watching the grandkids, three of the grandkids, so their parents, their parents could go to the game yesterday, and. I think we were there for six or seven hours, and we were, we were coming back in the car. I said to Carol, I said, I'm tired. This is hard. I was telling somebody, it's like this. If you were a, a high school track star, it, well, you don't even have to be a star, but let's say you're on a high school track team, and you used to run the 400, which is one of the harder races, because you, you can't run a sprint, but you can't run slow. And you gotta, it, it's, it's a really tiring race. So you did that for your high school career. But then 20 years went by, and you didn't do anything. And you threw the sneakers on, and you said, I think I'll run a 400. I think you'd get to about 100, and your heart would say, are you out of your mind? What are you doing? Right? Now, here's the thing. We, we have five boys that we raised together. We were doing 400s all the time. We hadn't done a 400 in a while. And we were both in the car coming home going, that was hard. But here's the thing. If they called us again and said, can you come down and watch the kids again for a few hours or overnight, we would probably look at each other and go, we wouldn't do this. We wouldn't go, I don't know. It was so hard the last time. And they didn't really listen to us. They didn't always behave. And they're really, really messy. I mean, come on. What do you want from us? We're going to retire here sometime. We didn't, you know, we could have, you know what our answer would have been? Absolutely. Absolutely. Was it hard? Yeah. Was it tiring? Yeah. We do it again? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You see the desire there? The desire doesn't come because 
Well, that's what you should do because you're the grandparents, and if you're going to be good grandparents, that's what you do, or good parents, that's what you do. Moms get up in the middle of the night with their kids, and they're tired, and they've had a hard day, and they just got to sleep, and all of a sudden they hear the crying in the other room, and they get up, and they take care of the child, and hopefully they get back to sleep, right? Dads do that. Your kid calls you on the phone and they say, I'm in trouble. And you go, I'm kind of watching a good show. Can it wait till tomorrow? What would you say? I'll be right there. Where are you? What's the difference there? Why do you behave like a grandparent or a parent with your kids? Is it because that's the role you're supposed to play? No, it's because there's this deep love and desire. It's not always fun. It's not always pretty. It is sometimes a grind, but you do it. Why? Because you really love them. And when you hear... And, you know, here's another one. So there are times where you think your kids and your grandkids are the cutest and the most handsome kids in the world. They're not. Okay? They are at, by the way, I've seen some of them, and they're not. They aren't. Now, I will say to your face, oh, aren't they cute? I'm lying, but I will say that. But, but when I look at my kids and my grandkids, I say, they're cute. And I want you to say the same thing. Now, I know you're lying to me, just like I'm lying to you. That's okay. That's the game. We get that. But we really believe that about our kids because we have that heart connection with them. What I'm suggesting is this. I think... What Paul is telling Titus is the grace of God, when you understand the grace of God, when it gets down and it seeps into your heart, you do these things, not out of duty, but out of delight. When God says jump, you say, how high? When God says, I've got something hard, you go, I'll do it. You see the difference? I think what we've said and what, we're, what people are hearing is if you read your Bible and meditate, if you, if you use your gifts, if you get into an accountability growth group, uh, uh, into a, a life group, if you do all those things, you will grow in your relationship. And, and I think that's true. We, we really think that's true. But if your heart isn't in it, there's a problem. It will always feel like drudgery and duty, and it will turn into legalism. What's your motive for living the good life for him? Here's the third thing. When we understand the gospel, it gives us an eternal hope. The gospel compels us to live now 
for eternity. And that means that we have this idea, this, this, this thing going on in our head all over, that we're living in a world that's going to hell in a handbasket, that the people around us that we love and care about need to hear the gospel, they need to have a chance, and that God wants to use us to reach them with the good news of the gospel, because he wants their lives to be flourishing. Jesus says, I have come to set you free so that you can really live now and forever. That's the message we have. The world right now is rejecting that gospel like no other time that I am aware of in my lifetime. These younger generations, kids, don't care and they don't see it as relevant. And they're committing suicide and they're looking for identity and they're struggling. And we're not just willing to take the time to build relationships with them and walk with them and hear their story and cry with them and struggle with them and help them. But what Paul says, we have this blessed hope. We have this blessed hope. And this eternal hope buoys us. It anchors us and it buoys us. So a ship, you need two things when you're a ship and there's a storm. Many times a ship will not harbor, when it harbors, it will, it will drop an anchor during a storm. And, you know, hopefully the anchor holds, right? But the other thing about the ship is it has to be buoyant. <laughs> and, and, and it needs to stay above the water. And that's what the, the hope of the gospel does. It, it anchors our soul, but it also gives us a buoyancy so that when we go through difficult times and trials, we don't sink and our life doesn't get ripped apart. Somebody has said, and I think it's true, that you, when you have a proper eschatology or understanding of the end times, it leads to ethical believe, uh, be, behavior that we, we want to live godly in lives that aren't polluted by worldliness and that we have a message that will transform the people around us. We have a limited time and God has given us a message that will change people's lives. But people aren't willing to listen to us because they haven't seen anything different because we are living lives just like theirs, without hope, without purpose, without meaning, that are f filled with worldliness and godlessness, and we wonder. Now, it's an interesting phrase, and I want to just jump here for a minute, and we'll close with this. Uh, Paul uses a phrase. He says, the, peer, the peering, uh, the other translation that I once memorized was the glorious appearing, but the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, that phrase, the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is essentially saying something very profound. John 1 says it. Uh, other passages say it. Ba basically, it's saying that Jesus is God. He is God. And I know the culture, you know, would reject that. But he basically is ascribing the full divinity or godness of God. Now, the, the God Zeus, remember we talked about the, the, the island of Crete. We said that the, the people of the island of Crete said, Zeus, who was a man, became God. And we launched him into godness, right? What does the Bible say? The Bible says that Jesus is God, he's always been God, and he took upon himself human flesh. So it wasn't man becoming God, it was God becoming man. It was God becoming the God-man. Now the question is, why would Jesus become the God-man? Why in the world would he do it? Paul tells us, Titus chapter 3, verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, 
He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ came as a rescue party of one to save us from our sins, to give his life so that we could live, not just now, abundant life now, but forever. Paul says to Titus, if you understand the gospel, one, you will live a life that is not polluted by the world. You won't, you, you won't live that life. You won't live that life. And you will live a life filled with hope. Filled with hope. Let me pray with you. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your grace. I pray if there's anyone here or somebody watching, and maybe the next step they need to take is they need to take that step of faith. And thank you, Father, that you sent Jesus Christ, and he willingly stepped off of his throne and came from heaven to earth as a rescue party of one. That he lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. That he gave his life so that we could live, and he, he, he um, uh, took our sins so that we could be forgiven. And Father, as he gave his life to me, I now give my life to you. I call on you to save me and to be my Lord today. And Father, if anybody prayed a prayer like that, I pray that they would let somebody know that they prayed to trust Jesus Christ and begin, take their first step with him today. For the rest of us, Father, who maybe have taken that step recently or a long time ago, I pray that you'd help us to Go to the heart of the matter. Where is our heart? Help us to see that uh, until we are amazed and, and just drawn by your grace and mercy, help us to rehearse the gospel. Help us to rehearse the cross. Help us to see to the extent that Jesus went for us. May it break our hearts. May it break up the fallow ground and bring a softening and a newness of life to our hearts. And Father, thank you for your spirit. I pray that your spirit were, would work in each and every one of our lives to help us take whatever the next step needs to be. We ask this for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing?